the repetition that beats through that passage, it is pretty clear who Jesus is speaking to, Pharisees, teachers of the law, and it is pretty clear why he is pronouncing this woe upon them. Accurately and authoritatively, he has said again and again and again and again, hypocrites. Last time we began to think about what that hypocrisy meant, and Liam really helpfully showed us that it is slightly different to what we might mean by the word hypocrite. Uh, The idea of a hypocrite in the first century is an actor, someone who wears a mask that doesn't really portray properly the person underneath it. So when we might say hypocrite, we mean someone who says one thing and does another. When Jesus says hypocrite, he means someone who looks one way but is another. Here, he begins to expose those differences. Seven times, he will take away the mask and show the person underneath. Think Scooby-Doo, ripping off the mask and showing the imposter beneath for what they really are. Before we dig into these uh, rippings off of the mask, we need to be clear on something so that we make sure we get something out of this for us. Now, it's really clear that Jesus is speaking to specific people, isn't it? At a specific time, he gives this specific verdict to specific men. And it is clear that we do not live in that time and don't do the exact same things that they are doing. But remember this, Matthew writes and records all of this for our benefit. As what the eternal king pronounces judgment on, as what the eternal king says is the opposite to his kingdom, is always true. The things, the traits, the hypocrisy and the heart of this passage, Jesus is always against in all people who hold it in whatever time and in whatever way it expresses itself in their lives. This is his forever declaration against hypocrisy. It would be stupid of us this morning to dismiss and to distance the Pharisees as, oh, that's just like Mr. Hypocrisy, and he's over there and we're nothing like him. No, instead this morning... We need to ask the question, are we like them? As we look at what the hypocrisy really is, as Jesus exposes the mask and exposes the heart, we need to ask again and again, do I see myself in the Pharisee? Does my church look like a church they'd have fit in well? And if the answer is yes at any point to any of these things, please pay close and careful attention to what Jesus says at the end if you discover this morning that you are a hypocrite. One caveat, you might be thinking, who is this smug, jumped up person to stand at the front and accuse me of being a hypocrite? You are right. I need to hear the message of this passage. I am a hypocrite. Uh, This is God's word to me this day as much as it is to you, so please don't misunderstand this as being my proclamation. This is Jesus' verdict. So let's look then at the first tearing off of the mask. He does this in three pairs, so we're not going to look at all seven separately. We're going to look at three pairs and then the last one together. And in every case, we're going to rip off the mask and see the heart that lies beneath it. Firstly then, this is the religious leaders, the teachers, men who would have been esteemed, who looked respectable and righteous, the figureheads of their religious society. And undoubtedly, they had followings. And undoubtedly, from what Jesus says here in verse 15, they looked to grow their followings. Look again with me at verse 15. Sorry, uh, sorry, yeah, verse 15. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. They are evangelistic preacher teachers. They look great going out, making disciples. 
But the reality of what these men do in their efforts to win followers is terrible. In verse 13 and 14, we see that as these men go out and make disciples, they close heaven. And in verse 15, we see that they open hell. What hypocrisy. To be someone entrusted with sharing the word of God with the people of God for their good to do such harm. How do they close heaven and open hell? By their own example. They encourage others to come and follow them in their religious activity, which is a disaster. Look at what they're involved in. Do you see in verse 15, uh, sorry, in verse 13, that they themselves have shut the door of heaven for themselves. You yourselves do not enter. And at the end of verse 15, we see that they themselves are children of hell, making people who are twice as much children of hell. In what way do they do this and make others do this? As we mentioned at the start, throughout the gospel, we've seen them reject God's grace. They've rejected God's grace in the person of his son. They have spurned him and his kingdom and everything it is about, and they have made sure others do so. There are instances where it looks like people are about to call Jesus the son of David, and they say, no, no, he works by the power of Beelzebul. Don't follow him. In not following Jesus, in not receiving God's grace in Jesus, and in making sure others don't, they literally slam the door of heaven in people's faces. You shall not pass. They have preferred and propagated instead in their teaching and their lives a faith that says good standing with God comes not by his grace in his son, but through keeping his law and through the laws they added to God's own law. They had a faith that was in their own good works, not a faith that was true Judaism, which is meant to receive the God of grace, but a faith that can best be described as Pharisaism. This is what they taught, and as other people came to follow it, they tried to be zealous. People tried to go above and beyond what the Pharisees were telling them to do, and in that sense, they become twice as much children of hell. What could be more hypocritical than an evangelist preacher who leads people away from Christ and towards a religion that is not about God. Jesus is right, you hypocrites. But what about us? Is there anything we do or anything we teach that might hinder people from seeing a gospel that is all about Jesus and his grace? Is there anything in us which might incline people to believe that Christianity is about works? Do we ever teach perhaps our children or our friends or each other that we should be good and do good without teaching the grace of Jesus which makes us right with God and which allows us to do good? Does our own Christian life demonstrate that we've put more confidence in the things we can do in our own flesh and not in the flesh of Christ? Do we ask others to imitate us in a religion that is all about works and so lead them astray from the gospel of grace? If this is the faith we live out and then we seek to make disciples, we don't make children of God, we make sons and daughters of hell. Maybe you think this is just something for leaders. This is for people who publicly teach and who lead in the church. And without a doubt, it has a lot to say to people like that who preach a Christianity that is devoid of grace. But all of us have an influence over other people. All of us are witnessing with our lives. So ask yourself, are the people who are following me and influenced by me amazed at a God of grace? Is that what they come away with when they imitate my faith? Do they marvel at a God who would save sinners as they spend time with me? 
Am I clearing the way to heaven and closing the door to hell in the gospel that I live and the gospel that I preach to others? Mask number two that gets ripped off, verse 16 to 23. Again, their role as teachers is a big part of this. A teacher is someone who's quite like a guide. They guide people through God's word, and as they do that, they guide people through life. These men looked like they were guides. They looked like they had authority and insight. But these verses reveal that they are guiding blind. That's the mask that they are guides, but their heart is blind. They look like leaders with insight, but did you notice that they have no sight? Look with me at verse 16 and the repetition of the word blind. Verse 16, woe to you, blind guides. Verse 19, blind men. Verse 17, blind fools. Verse 24, blind guides. And then we get two examples of their blind guiding, of how they have no clue about what God's word actually teaches and how they lead others in a terrible way of obeying God's words. The first one's in verse 16 and 22 and centers around this practice from the first century of swearing oaths. It's not something we might automatically get, but the whole idea is I try and make what I'm saying or I'm promising look truthful by appealing to the validity of something else. Uh, You might do the same thing. You might say, I promise to do it. I swear on my mother's eyes. It's a crazy thing to do. The problem with doing this is that people are liars. So as much as we might make truth claims and appeal to something else, sometimes we then want to back out of the promise we've made. That's where this whole idea of binding comes in. They don't want to be bound to what they've promised to do. They don't want to keep their word. And the Pharisees have helped them to find a loophole in God's word, or as they understand God's word, where they can swear on certain things without being bound. They can swear on things that relate to God without being bound before God. Jesus says they've made two mistakes. Firstly, their logic is rubbish. Verse 17 and 19 underline that this whole idea of something being on an altar being less or more sacred than the altar itself is just insane. doesn't make sense. Quite literally, when he says blind fools, the word is blind moron. They have no idea about how the temple works. The second mistake is even more deadly. As they try and find this way of understanding God's word, they show that they actually want to do something really, really foul. They want to avoid being bound. They want license to lie. They want to find a way to do it. Instead of being people who think that God's holiness matters and so want to reflect God's holiness in how they speak and live and act, they want to find a loophole in God's word which allows them to lie, to make promises they don't keep. Jesus' kingdom, remember from Matthew 5, could not be more different. Remember how Jesus teaches, don't swear oaths. Instead, remember everything you say is said before God, who judges rightly, so let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. Instead, these men find a sinful way of exploiting a terrible hermeneutic to lead people blindly. Imagine a blind pilot. When he crashes, more than just him suffers. What about us, though? We might think, oh, we would never do that. But do we ever look for loopholes in God's law to try and excuse our sin? Instead of seeking obedience based on an awe of God's holiness, can we sometimes think of examples where Christians and even churches try and find new ways of interpreting the Bible to allow them to live how they would want? How misleading. What about us? Do we ever justify our sin with a tradition rather than fleeing sin according to the truth? I wonder, 
Second example of their blind guiding is verse 23 and 24. And again, it shows that they miss the very heart of the law. This time, it looks like they're absolutely nailing it. Do you see that in verse 23? You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. That's not even in the Bible to do. They're going above and beyond the call of duty. They're absolutely smashing tithing. These are the greatest tithers that ever lived. But they have missed something bigger. They might have become masters of the minute details of God's law, but they have remained muppets when it comes to the massive things of God's law. Mint, dill, cumin, check. Justice, mercy, faithfulness, no. And Jesus highlights for us really clearly, doesn't he, that these things are more important. Tithing is a good function of obeying God, but these things are the very foundation of what it means to be the people of God. And here's why. Because acting in justice, mercy, and faithfulness is an expression publicly of how God has treated us. For the people of God in the Old Testament and the New, they were to reflect God's character because they loved God's character. He has been towards us so just and so merciful and so faithful, so we're going to do justice and be merciful to others and remain faithful in our relationship with God as he has been so faithful in his relationship to us. Jesus has made clear that this is the very essence of the law. To treat others in justice and mercy and to love God in faithfulness is what Jesus is talking about when he says, love God and love others. This is the heart of being God's people because it is how God has treated us. The Pharisees have failed to live God's grace because they don't treasure and enjoy this grace. They've missed God's heart to them. So though they wear the mask of outward obedience, sieving out the little gnats, they've choked on the camel of God's law of love. It's comical, isn't it? As they've lived by their works, ironically, they've missed out on the center of the law, God's grace, which speaks of God's son, who was right in front of their eyes. What about us? Have we got nailing little aspects of God's word down? Are we great at the little minute details of Christianity that might not even be in the Bible? Are we impressive with how much we know and with all the biblical minutiae that we get absolutely bang on, yet miss God's law of love as we fail to love him and love others? Do you relish getting the tiny superficial things right so that people can see it? whilst being so different from our God and from the grace he has shown us? Are you an excellent Christian who looks nothing like Christ? Do you pride yourself in the convenient obedience that you can do, but never spend time giving yourself in a costly way to others? Do you guide people in the wrong direction by living this way? By failing to point them to how God has treated us, by reflecting God's treatment of us to the world? Mask number three in verses 25 and 28. Two pictures that tell us the exact same thing. The Pharisees looked very clean on the outside as they fulfilled the law. Do you remember last week we saw in verse five that they did that, that they might be seen to be fillers of the law? They are clean outside, whitewashed even. But let's look at the inside. Come with me to verse 25. Let's read again from the middle of the verse. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside... They are full of greed and self-indulgence. 
Verse 27, again, you are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside but on the inside are full of bones and of the dead and of everything unclean. Here's the problem with the Pharisees. They have given themselves to an external religion of what they could achieve and were blind to the sin that was in their hearts. They were so busy fooling others about their righteousness and even buying into it themselves that they didn't receive a Jesus who can clean from the outside in. I find this probably the most convicting and the most concerning for us as a church. We're very good in Britain and in middle-class evangelical Christianity at presenting whitewashed tombs. We're excellent at this. We make sure that we always project a perfectly clean, a respectable and presentable outward self. I think sometimes we might be guilty of having a faith that is more worried about what others see of us and never thinks about dealing honestly with the sin which God sees in our hearts. We care a lot about what other people think of us, don't we? So preoccupied with it. And so rarely would we disclose to somebody the darkness of our hearts. We would never share the darkest and deepest things about us. And so we never get the chance to apply God's grace to each other's deep, dark places. We're so good at plumping up cushions and hoovering carpets before friends from church arrive so that they might never believe that we were having troubles in our heart that caused troubles in our families. It's dangerous. It's dangerous to think that growing in godliness looks like doing more and more Christian stuff and yet never deals with the sin that's in our hearts. Maybe you're here this morning and you think you're a Christian, but actually your Christianity is all about that kind of thing. You think being a Christian looks like belonging to a church and doing churchy things. Maybe here's when you'd say, I'm not even religious, but you might recognize that you spent your whole life trying to put on a persona of being a good person. But inside you recognize that you're not quite right. Even as Christians, we can have a faith which looks to cover up our sin and not cleanse our hearts. This is dangerous. We're good at this at our church, aren't we? We've got deceptively good looks. We say the right things, we look the right way, but we're not often honest about our desperate need for Jesus because of our terrible sin. Fourth and final part of their hypocrisy. They look like those who accept the prophets and honor the prophets. They decorate their graves and they say they've got nothing in common with their ancestors who killed the prophets. But Jesus says they're fooling no one. They are not those who honor the prophets. Instead, verse 31, they are just like their ancestors who killed the prophets. They reject Christ. They finish what their ancestors had started. See that in verse 32? Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. Just like the parable of the tenants that we looked at a few weeks ago in Matthew 21. God has sent and sent and sent people to warn his people to return to him. And they have rejected and killed each one in turn. And finally, in that story, he sends his own son, who they treat just the same way. Look what Jesus says in verse 34 to these people who say that they honor the prophets. Therefore I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. 
They say they honor God's messengers, but they are going to kill God's Messiah. What hypocrisy. What hypocrisy. They're going to do just the same to the people who come after Jesus preaching his gospel. You can read about that in the book of Acts, chasing from town to town, flogging in synagogues. That's the story of those who preach Jesus. These people who say that they honor God not only shun God's son, but kill God's son. That's what Pharisees are. They look godly, but they have hearts that hate God's grace. And so they've got continuity exactly with their horrible ancestors. Jesus' verdict as the king is clear then, isn't it? Look with me again at verse 33. This is the king's pronouncement. You snakes, you brood of vipers. Literally, that means they're people who propagate the venom of the snake in Genesis 3. They spread his lie and pervert God's truth. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Look with me again at verse 35 and 36, where we see that the guilt of those who've rejected the A to Z of God's messengers, the A to Z of the righteous, now falls upon those who reject God's Son. This verdict is not just for these Pharisees. Look with me at verse 37. He's been saying Pharisees teach the law, and now he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together? This is Jesus' last words to these people, but we see that they're a type for lots more people. This is what many were like. And remember here, this isn't Jesus just trying to have the last word in an argument so they can say, ha ha, I got the last word on you Pharisees. Look at the way Jesus expresses a heartbroken judgment. Look with me again at verse 37 from the middle. How often I have longed to gather you, your children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. On all who are hypocrites and shun Christ and shun These men are people who are hypocrites, who shun Christ and shun his grace. They are a brood of vipers. But Jesus says to these snakes, I would have brought you in as chicks. What grace. Christ has longed to gather snakes, vipers, to be his chicks under his wings. A picture of intimacy and salvation and union. That is stunning love to people who don't deserve it at all. That's grace. Verse 37, he says he has often sought to do this. That's what he was doing by sending them prophets and coming himself and sharing with them the kingdom. Remember a few weeks ago, we looked at the way he even shared with them a wedding invite. Come to be part of the king's feast. But they have preferred their own outward works to the grace of God. They have been blind to their own need and blind to the glory and grace of the Jesus in front of their eyes. Therefore, Jesus declares to them in verse 38, their temple will be destroyed. And verse 39, that he will come again in judgment to receive praise from another group of people. That's what we're going to look at over the next two weeks in chapter 24 and 25. But remember what we said right at the start. This is a specific judgment on specific people at a specific time. But this is a general judgment against hypocrisy and against legalism, which rejects Christ and rejects Christ's grace. We noticed last week how Jesus' humility set him apart from these Pharisees who were proud. Notice this week how his grace sets him apart 
from these Pharisees which are legalists. Christ has come in love. Christ has come to open heaven, to gather children to himself forever. Children not of hell, but children of heaven. He has come to take snakes and make them chicks as the righteous one who has lived not only the heart of God's law, but the whole of God's law. Now he stands crying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. What grace in the Lord Jesus. If we could get the next slide. As with his wedding invite, it was rejected by these men, but it will be received by others. As people who actually recognize their need of Jesus come to him, his longing to gather a people to himself is a longing that will be fulfilled. His longing will be satisfied as through his cross, he is gonna gather a group of people to himself from every tribe and tongue and nation. He's gonna save a new people, make a new Jerusalem. Look at verse 39. This will happen. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Christ will return to gather his own. He will bring those who are his. But they will be just like Pharisees in so many ways. These men are quite like us, who wear masks and who hide our hearts. To those very same people, Jesus says, I am willing to gather you. Maybe you've seen yourself in the Pharisees today. Maybe you realize that you've lived a life that was based on trying to look good, impress other people by being a good person. But actually, in your heart, you've proudly rejected your need for Christ, your need for salvation, and your need for grace preferring things that you could do to make yourself look better. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian and that's you. Maybe you're here today and you thought you were a Christian and that's you. The truth is that we're all Pharisees because we are all sinners. Our default setting is to be legalists, to try and go it alone, to make ourselves right. And it is so important for you to see this morning that your heart has rejected the Lord Jesus. You might think, I only share in a bit of this hypocrisy. Understand this, you share in the final part too. Ours are hearts that would reject and have shared in the killing of the Lord Jesus. We sing that, don't we, when we sing how deep the Father's love. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. Before you see the cross as something done for you, you must see it as something done by you, by all of us in our sinful hearts. But please don't walk away this morning only with the sadness and the guilt of thinking, I've got a heart like theirs. Please see this morning the heart of Jesus for you. That whatever you have done, whatever your Pharisaic patterns have been, however much of a hypocrite you have been, he is willing and he is longing to gather you to himself. And he can do what outward religion could never do. He can wash you on the inside. He can wash you on the outside too through taking away your sin on himself on the cross and paying for all of the guilt and all of the shame and all of the judgment it deserves. He can leave you clean, right with God. Through his resurrection, he can give you a new heart and a new life to know him and be his forever. That's what he's doing. He's gathering, even snakes like us. When you realize that the cross was done by you, you can start to see that it was done for you. 
start to sing the second part of that song, singing, it was my sin that held him there. Until it was accomplished, his dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Come today, trust in Jesus, submit to this Lord of love. Maybe you'd like to pray with someone to do that today. There's going to be a prayer team down at the front, and I'll be around after the service, and Liam and Matt, we'd love to talk to you and help you come to Jesus today, because you must come to Jesus. Finally, for Christians today, maybe you've seen more of yourself in the Pharisees than you'd have liked. You need to look again at the amazing grace of the Lord Jesus. This is how we're transformed Remember this, the Pharisees are the way they are because they missed the grace of God. Seeing the grace of God, loving the grace of God, receiving the grace of God, relishing in and taking joy from the grace of God saves you from being a Pharisee. How do Pharisees stop being Pharisees? Through the gospel, every day. As it removes our need to stop, to keep wearing masks, tells us the truth about our hearts, but gives us hope for sinful hearts that we might share with one another our struggles with sins, that this might be a place where we don't cover things up, but we confess and receive the grace of Jesus offered to us on the cross. The Pharisees have failed to know and enjoy and to love God's grace, so they've failed to live and to preach it. That he would have snakes come to be his chicks is beautiful. That's his grace to you this morning if you're a hypocritical Christian like me, if you can see that you've started to live more out of legalism than out of love for God's grace in the gospel, then look again at this awesome God of grace who would not only stand there and cry out for Jerusalem, but would go outside of Jerusalem and die on a cross to bring you home into his side, nestled like a chick forever. That's the gospel And it is the gospel that kills Pharisees. That is what will put legalism to death in our hearts. That is what teaches us the essence of Christ's law, his law of love. Run again, Christian, to God's grace. Run again. Humble yourself to the king. Respect his kingdom ethic of love for others and love for him out of a love for what he has done for us. Be honest about yourself. Don't be blind to yourself and blind to your need. But come, depending on Christ, marvel at this incredible, stunning God of grace who has come into the world to save you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the great honesty of your word. Lord, we find it uncomfortable to be called hypocrites and to see our sin, we find it uncomfortable to see that we were people who would have killed the Lord Jesus. We pray today that you would forgive us according to your great mercy, according to your mercy. Blot out our transgressions through the blood of Jesus shed for us on the cross. Thank you so much that you have transformed us from snakes to sons. Thank you so much for this king and for his love. Help us to submit to him, to love his grace, and so to live his grace better, we pray. For his name's sake, amen.